What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and don't look now, but shares of First Republic are melting down again the day before the Fed's meeting kicks off. So will they hike or will they pause? Are there any good options right now as questions over the health of the banking system remain? We'll talk to one economist who says the Fed should pause and another who expects a dovish hike. They'll be here to explain why. Plus, why is Bitcoin surging? It's back above 28,000 to a nine-month high. Crypto champions say this is precisely why it was created. Critics say it's a head fake. We'll talk to a leading crypto banker about whether this rebound is sustainable. And a closer look at the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. According to the Wall Street Journal, regulators had concerns going back to 2015. Greg Zuckerman co-wrote the piece, and he's here with the details. Before all that, though, let's get the latest market moves. If you didn't know, Dom Chu, uh, you'd think it was just a quietly positive day. A quietly positive day, although I've switched telestrators, right, Kelly? Because normally I'm about 20 feet from you right now, and now I'm over here at the New York Stock Exchange. But yes, it is a green day, and we are just about in your session highs right now. With the Dow Industrials currently up about 363 points, north of 1% gain there. Three quarters of 1% for this S&P 500. 39.45, though, so still below that 4,000 level, but up 29 points. And the Nasdaq composite is the laggard, just about flat on the session right now, although modestly green, up seven points to 11,637. One of the key moves here we're watching is in interest rates. With an upcoming Fed meeting in just a couple of days and a big interest rate decision coming up, what's happening here? Well, we're ticking higher, actually, right now. So there has been a little bit of selling pressure in the face of all the buying and bidding that we've doing for the safety of U.S. government bonds. Right now, the two-year note yield is 3.93%. The 10-year note yield is 3.48%. Remember, just a couple weeks ago, two, three weeks prior to the lows that we saw in yields because of the banking crisis that we're dealing with, it was about 4.1%. So it's dramatic, still move lower overall, but higher today. So keep an eye on that, the 30-year long bond, 3.65. And then all of that is playing out with the regional banks. If you take a look at First Republic, news today, it gets downgraded to another notch level in junk, B+, single B+. It was a double B+, before. But now we've got the journal reporting that J.P. Morgan Chase and CEO Jamie Dimon could be looking at a possible or talking about a possible rescue package for First Republic. Those shares down off their lows, down 29%. PacWest, Western Alliance, the epicenter banks around that West Coast kind of meltdown tied to Silicon Valley. Mixed in the session so far. PacWest up nine, Western down four. And then U.S. Bank and PNC Financial getting a bit of a bid, Kelly, because there is this kind of view playing out that some of the super regional Bigger regional banks could be beneficiaries from some of the turmoil that we're seeing as well. So keep an eye on those big banks like U.S. Bank and PNC Financial on the regional side. Kel, I'll send things back over to you. Absolutely, we will. Dom, thank you. Uh, I miss you. Uh, My next guest says the Fed should pause, but it will be a minute-by-minute, market-by-market monetary policymaking week. Joining me now is Michael Darda and his dog. He's chief economist and market strategist at Roth Kemp. I did see the dog lift his head briefly, Mike, and I I just want people to know uh, he is sentient. I appreciate you joining me today. And what do you make of uh, of where we are? Yeah, interesting backdrop and uh, not a comfortable 
position for Fed Chair Powell going into the meeting this week, um, primarily because less than two weeks ago, he came out with a very hawkish message and essentially signaled that the Fed was not only going to go to a higher peak on the Fed funds rate, but would be willing to consider moving more quickly to get there uh, if, this, if the totality of the data um, continued to, to suggest the Fed overshooting its inflation target and, and strong growth figures. And that really meant the February CPI, which came in hot. So, you know, they're in a bit of a box here. If they were forward looking, I, I think they would be looking at inflation expectations, which are collapsing a yield curve that's still deeply inverted in money supply figures that had been collapsing in a banking crisis, if anything, will lower the velocity of money, lower the neutral interest rate. So even by skipping a rate hike, monetary conditions likely will continue to tighten. Um, but they, you know, if markets are stable, they may, they may go for the 25 basis points. I do think that is a mistake, however. You know, I saw uh, Lars Christensen, others writing and, and highlighting that drop in break evens and basically saying uh, the Fed's almost at risk. The market is signaling of missing its inflation target on the downside. I wrote about that today. And people, by the way, those who follow commodities and that kind of thing are saying you're absolutely right. And we're not paying enough attention to that message. Others who are looking at the inflation around them are saying, how in the world can that be possible? Um, do you think it's really possible that we could see CPI go from six to something more like four, three, two percent? I mean, it, to what the break-evens are basically telling us for the next five years, 2.1. Look, it wasn't very long ago that you had a lot of people that didn't believe we'd ever see inflation again. If we think about late 2020 going into 2021, the money supply exploded first, commodities exploded first, nominal GDP exploded upward, uh, and then inflation started to accelerate and continue to accelerate and persisted far longer than what the consensus was thinking back in early 2021, you know, with the whole temporary transitory imbroglio. But if you were looking forward, looking at money supply, looking at break-even, evens looking at leading indicators, you really weren't surprised about how things unfolded. Uh, the problem now is a backward-looking monetary policy will put us into perpetual boom and bust cycles, and we're moving into the bust phase now. And you probably saw this chart in our research, but I have 165 years of history showing, showing benchmark short rates, so even predating the Fed, and yield curves, when you get these rapid spikes in short rates and inverted yield curves, invariably you end up with a financial crisis in recession. So, you know, it's not a complete surprise that we're in this predicament. The sort of scary thing to contemplate is whether, because of the fact that, that they're kind of backward looking and reacting to lagging data, could we risk a rerun of 08? Not because we had to, but because that is an accident that can happen when, when rate hikes are as fast as they are and inversions are as deep as they are. And is that in a way what the market is telling us is that the risk of repeating an 08 style event is now much higher than the risk of sustained inflation? Um, or am I putting it too strongly? No, I think that's exactly right. The strength in backward looking sticky price indicators is a huge risk here because that's what the Fed can see and feel. Uh, the forward looking stuff, they have to take a leap of faith and no one wants to do that now that they've been overshooting their inflation target. And so that sets up for a potentially drastic tightening in monetary conditions, which simply could be the neutral interest rate falling as the banking crisis gets worse. It 
may not be active Fed rate hikes. So in the second half of 08, that's exactly what happened is the financial crisis intensified. The equilibrium interest rate fell through the ground. If you were watching the tips market, the tips market captured that. Real rates soared and inflation break-evens collapsed. And the Fed was just sitting there fighting the financial crisis, but not really doing much with monetary policy policy until we got into late, late 08, early 09. And what happened? You know, we went into a deflationary spiral. So there are a lot of differences now versus then. But the point is, you can have acts of commission and acts of omission. You know, last year was about the Fed catching up and using its policy uh, in, in, in increasing its policy rate target 450 basis points in less than a year. Uh, and now you could have a situation where the neutral interest rate is falling and the Fed is failing to follow suit because right. it's in view mirror. Right. So then as we, and this will kind of be a theme uh, today and throughout the week, as we talk about the reasons why Bitcoin is up and until today, the Nasdaq had out, been outperforming and all of those things. And I'm sure you've seen uh, Balaji and others talking about how this means hyperinflation because the fact is that is back in easing mode. Can you explain why we might see those kinds of, I don't know to call them liquidity momentum assets doing what they're doing and how sustained might that be if we're talking about the end of the Fed's tightening campaign? Yeah, you have some contradictory information. I'm not sure how good of an inflation hedge Bitcoin is. I mean, it's a super super speculative asset class if we're talking about crypto and one that had crashed. And so if you have a, a turn in, in tightening expectations, that might be enough for a lift. But I'd focus more if we're thinking about inflation and inflation risk. Watch the inflation break-even market. You know, watch the high yield market here very closely. Watch these money supply figures. We already had a situation where broad money supply was falling, even in nominal terms. And because of the high inflation period, more than 70% of the bulge in 2020, 2021 has now been reversed. So the Fed has largely accomplished its mission in terms of tightening monetary policy. And now if we're headed into a recession with banking strains, the risk is that with a falling velocity of money falling equilibrium interest rate, the Fed could end up in a way too tight monetary stance. And, you know, that'll send inflation a lot lower. That's right. not upward pressure on, on inflation. So situation. then quick final question, Mike, which segments of the market do you think are most at risk? Well, you know, I'd, I'd say the, the more cyclical areas for sure, the S&P 500 as a whole, we think, you know, could have 15, 20 percent downside here before it's a buying opportunity. Um, healthcare is our favorite sector within the S&P because it's not super cyclical and it screens fairly well in terms of valuation. We have been bullish across the Treasury curve a little early with that call in late September, but uh, it is working now. All right, Michael Darda, thanks again for your time today. Appreciate you joining us on a day like this. Thank you. From Roth MKM. That's perfect setup for our next discussion. Let's zero in on the NASDAQ right now, which is coming off its best week in two months before a little bit underperforming today. And it's coming as we're getting news of more big tech layoffs. Amazon cutting another 9,000 jobs. Apple doing cost cuts in an effort to avoid layoffs. My next guest says these measures and a more dovish Fed are setting tech up nicely for the rest of the year, calling it the safety blanket trade. <laughs> Let's bring in Dan Ives of Woodbush joining me here on set. Dan, it's good to see you. Great to be what do you mean by safety blanket, the, the kind of warm and cozy, everything's going to be okay again kind of idea. When the one that Sunday night, you don't have to worry about headlines coming from tech. I think if you look at it, it's really sort of a combo set up in terms of numbers where the decks have been cleared in terms of guidance. I think fundamentals holding up better than expected. 
And I think risk reward on tech continues to be compelling. That's why you're seeing more and more move to tech. And we believe it's not done. I think tech continues to be the trade this year. If I were an investor listening to what Mike Darda just said and saying, you know what, let me get out of the cyclical stuff and get to the stuff in tech that's most like healthcare, <laughs> what to you would be kind of most ignorant or least prone to the cyclical waves in the economy? Because my first thought goes to the Facebooks and the Googles. It seemed like they'd be more ad exposed. Maybe that's not where you'd want to be. Um, but just kind of give us the broad picture here. How how resilient do you think these companies are likely to be to a slowing economy? Well, I think it's been rock of Gibraltar so far. If you look at cloud, look at names like Microsoft, Salesforce.com. Look at names like Datadog as well as other than cybersecurity. I mean, Palo Alto, uh, CyberArk, among others. And I think that's what we're seeing here. And also, with a lot of these tech companies ripping the Band-Aid off, of course, we've seen with Zuckerberg and now with Jazzy and Amazon, that ultimately has really laid the groundwork for what's going to be the next cycle. And I think that's why the street likes what they're seeing here on tech, which I continue to think is under-owned, you know, especially going back, in my opinion, I'd say 2010 in terms of the sentiment right now mm. in tech. So if I think back to the 2010s, and this was the period that Fang obviously took off. Now, it was also its creation, right? Google went public in 04. So part of the beauty of the 2010s was in a low-growth economy, you had companies that were massively growing. You know, what was the growth rate? I think it was 25% on average. I mean, something insane like that. Will that work this time around? Have these companies matured to that beyond that point in which they're just going to grow with GDP, which you might not want to be exposed to? What are the parts of tech that are still growing more than GDP? Yeah, and it's a great point. I mean, if you look in a 2-3% IT spending environment, cloud's growing 23 to 25%. Even if you look at wow. Microsoft, look at what Nadell is doing, even AWS, and then you look at cybersecurity growing upper 20s. So that's why it speaks to this fourth industrial revolution, and despite the macro, the uncertainty, what we're seeing in banks, I think that's what tech's setting up for in terms of the next cycle. And I think many use their 2022 playbook in 2023. And that's why I believe tech here, it's the safety blanket in the storm. And as an investor, Sunday night, you're not checking your you know, email, figuring out what the next uh, Worrying if your company's going to fail. Um, quick comment on cybersecurity. Is there any risk there of people piling in because it's done relatively well? Um, what are the valuations like? Yeah, in terms of the pile-on trade, I mean, we're still about 30% below the average over the last five years. I also think there's going to be a surge of M&A. I think that's the other thing. You look at SVB and others. That's going to catalyze these companies in terms of strong will get stronger in terms of this M&A. We see a tidal wave of M&A coming in cybersecurity. And other areas as well, or just more unique there? I think overall tech. I think we will have tech M&A up about 25% this year, both on the private side as well as public. And that's why a lot of these companies, they have more cash in some countries. And they're, they're going to, despite some of the antitrust worries, they're going to be going aggressively after. And I think that's what you're seeing in tech being green, where a lot of these other sectors are red. Yeah, actually, dear, just, we'll talk about all of that cash a little bit later on. Point well taken. Dan, it's good to see you. Thanks for Thanks coming for in today. Me. I appreciate it. Dan Ives with Wedbush. Still ahead, it's not just the NASDAQ outperforming lately. Bitcoin has shot up to a nine-month high in the midst of this global banking turmoil. Why? We'll ask one veteran, Wall Street veteran who's been in the crypto space for over a decade. Plus, with regulators warning about SVB as far back as 2015, how did the red flags go ignored for so long? We'll take you inside their boardroom and break it all down with the former head of the OCC. And as we head to break, here's a look at your markets. Dow's up almost 400 points at session highs, and it and the Russell are out performing today. Russell's up 1.6% after getting hit hard by banking and energy problems. S&P 500 back to 39.50. 10-year note just below 3.5%. We're back after this.
This is The Exchange on CNBC. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back, everybody. We're up 400 points, a little off the session highs. In fact, NASDAQ, for once, is the laggard today. A couple of Staples names are moving higher after getting upgraded to hold from sell at Deutsche Bank. Firms saying the macro backdrop makes it more likely the pivot towards defensive names will continue. So Kimberly Clark's up almost 3%, best day since November. ConAgra, which had those tough earnings, best day since January. And for the first time in a decade, Raymond James is upgrading Enphase to outperform. This is the solar company. They point out the company's P.E. was 40 in early 21, but now trading at 26, a year low. The stock is leading the Nasdaq 100 today, rebounding from an eight-month low on Friday. Elsewhere, Bank of America upgrading NRG to buy from neutral, saying investors are underappreciating the core business. Plus, its newly acquired nuclear unit, those shares up about six and a half percent, best day since last May. For more on that call, you can head over to cnbc.com slash pro. Still ahead, Amazon cutting another 9,000 jobs after laying off 18,000 workers in January. We'll look at which jobs are going and what it means for their bottom line. And as we head to break, take a look at the sector heat map with 10 groups in the green today. And that includes energy, by the way, which is actually leading the way despite declines in the price of crude earlier on. Two and a half percent gain. Technology is the only sector in the red today. The exchange is back after this. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to The Exchange. You might think assets of all kinds would be collapsing amid a banking crisis, but Bitcoin? How about surging to a nine-month high? Its price has nearly doubled from its lows to more than $28,000 after the collapse of Credit Suisse and as First Republic teeters. My next guest knows plenty about the banking system and thinks Bitcoin will prove its staying power this time. Joining me now is Caitlin Long, founder and CEO of Custodia Bank. Caitlin, welcome. Thanks. Good to be back, Kelly. Are you as bullish as Balaji Srinivasan, who thinks hyperinflation takes Bitcoin's price to a million bucks in 90 days time? Well, uh, I wouldn't make a price prediction like that. uh, But it is clear that a lot more folks are waking up to the instability of a traditional financial system and uh, and being orange pilled, so to speak, uh, looking at Bitcoin for the first time. So, 
why do you think it's taken this recent leg higher? What, what do you think is driving that? Well, it, it's a couple of things. There are some technicals where stable coins have lost their banking access due to Operation Choke Point 2.0, the failure of a, of a couple of banks uh, and the deep banking that is taking place among bank regulators uh, coming out of Washington, D.C., pressuring banks not to bank this industry. And as a result, the selling of stablecoins going back to Bitcoin as the core asset in this industry has created some buying pressure. But then also, it is an insurance policy. It is a scarce asset, just like other types of scarce assets uh, that are insurance policies against financial system instability. And uh, boy, I sure am seeing it in, in my traditional finance uh, connections on social media, they have spiked. There are a lot of people s sensing that there's a paradigm shift in mm. the traditional financial system now. Well, a lot of people nervous about their careers, probably. I mean, it's it's yes. very tough to watch this play out, knowing that uh, sure. perhaps the Fed could do something to try to support it and avoid it. And, and whether they choose to do so or not, we'll see. Um, I, I think it'd be interesting just kind of back up for a second and talk about stablecoins, some of the parts of this ecosystem that you mentioned, it's not necessarily Teflon. I mean, when we saw going back two Sundays to the SVB collapse, we started to see USD coin break the buck as well. I forget if we got as low as, what was it, 93, something in that range. Uh, are we so sure that, that, that it won't be tested again as this uh, turmoil plays out? Uh, we're not. And, and, and it's because stablecoins ultimately do rely on connectivity to the U.S. dollar banking system. And if they're being shoved out by bank regulators, then uh, that, then definitely there are questions about that. It, it's interesting that Tether, which has which says they've stayed offshore and only gets their U.S. dollar banking from offshore entities, so they say Tether has massively taken market share among the stable coins because those that were trying to become regulated and get inside the regulatory perimeter in the U.S., including my own company, Custodia Bank, we've all been shoved to the side. And what that's doing is pushing more of this activity into the proverbial shadows. Right. So even looking at Signature, whose collapse seems to have quite a bit to do with uh, its crypto exposure, what does that tell you as uh, someone trying to lead a banking effort in crypto? Well, there is a clamoring for safe banks. In fact, there's a very interesting article in Harvard Business Review that came out on Friday talking about the need for safe banks, that there are a lot of businesses whose payroll exceeds $250,000 every right. week or every month. And, and forcing businesses to put their payroll at risk to a, a, a sudden bank run just doesn't make sense. And it's, they're not clamoring for a full guarantee of deposits in the banking system. What they're clamoring for is exactly what Custodia Bank proposed and the Fed rejected weeks before the bank run started, which is a non-lending bank that just sits 100% in cash for these critical payments and deposits that are really volatile and can move around. It's the only thing that, that makes sense. Instead of forcing businesses to put their payroll payments at risk to a bank run, which is literally what everyone is doing if they hold more than $250,000 in a bank account right now. Yeah, no, it's supremely ironic that, you know, people spend the last couple of years trying to figure out whether to self-custody crypto only to have their actual dollars, you know, kind of be vulnerable to that same ownership question. So if we True. spin this forward and there's already uh, lots of people, Nelson Pelt, saying to some extent, why have these banks, or for instance, have the Federal Reserve be that backstop on and that guarantee on deposits as one way or another they are inevitably going to do so. Does that then 
kind of answer that call that you're looking for, which is to ultimately build a bank that maybe is a one-for-one you know, kind of thing for for people's deposits, or does it make people who are Bitcoin fans, you know, kind of get even more bullish about needing, in some ways, kind of more private ownership of these assets to not have to put them into uh, that the banking system of some kind in the first place. I think it's a combination of both, Kelly. It's I don't think that the U.S. dollar system is imploding overnight. There are some who think that it, that it is and are cheering the bank runs. I am not one of them because I am not interested in, in looking at a deflationary collapse of the banking system, especially given that the digital asset ecosystem has a lot of infrastructure yet to build. Uh, however, it is absolutely true that people really should be allowed to think about their bank deposits as theirs. What they haven't realized and are now waking up to is that when you put more than $250,000 into a bank, you're making an unsecured loan to a leveraged counterparty that might fail. Right. And uh, and that that that's inherently the way banking has always worked. It gets at the notion that banking is a confidence game, just like money is a confidence game. We can increase confidence by having the bank sit on a lot more cash and 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 hold one for one cash reserves against demand deposits boy that would stabilize the system it is it has not always been true in human history that banks lend we have this intuition that banks have to both both lend and safe keep our deposits the problem is that when banks lend and safe keep the very same money Inherently, the banks are unstable. Sure. And periodically, we they have to make we, we get money. I mean, big... what's the business model if it's not that? I mean, that's the fundamental question. Great question. The business model is fees and a fee based one for one bank, such as that which was called for in the Harvard Business Review over the weekend, is, is acknowledging these would not be the low cost producers because they yeah. could not um, subsidize their, their capital costs and their operating costs with income from their loan portfolio. However, let people have the choice. If people prefer stability and no interest on their cash, great. If people prefer interest on their cash and acknowledging that they're unsecured creditors of a leveraged institution, great. Give them the choice. The Federal Reserve is blocking that choice right now. It has the ability to go in and reverse its decision on Custodia Bank. Uh, And boy, if a few more weeks had passed before the Custodia Bank application was denied, uh, I wonder if the Fed would have made the same decision. We will ask uh, the regulators we speak with. Caitlin, it's great to have you on and get your perspective today. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Caitlin Long, Custodia Bank. And speaking of crypto, don't miss our exclusive with Strike CEO Jack Mallers next hour on Power Lunch. Uh, it's Bitcoin's first banking crisis. We'll talk to him about that top of the hour at 2 p.m. Eastern. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for the CNBC News update. Tyler? All right, I'll have my hoodie ready for that one, uh, Kelly. Uh, president Biden has vetoed a bill for the first time in his presidency. Within the last hour, he tweeted that he is rejecting a GOP-sponsored measure that would prohibit retirement plan managers from considering considering social equity and corporate governance factors. Biden says excluding them would put Americans' retirement savings at risk. A New York federal judge says today the U.S. Virgin Islands can proceed with a lawsuit against J.P. Morgan Chase over its ties uh, to Jeffrey Epstein. A lawyer for the Virgin Islands has argued in court that CEO Jamie Dimon, quote, knew in 2008 that his billionaire client was a sex trafficker, an accusation the bank denies. And USAID worker Jeffrey Woodkey and French journalist Olivier Dubois have been released in Niger after being held hostage for years by Islamic militants. Kelly, back to you. See you in a little bit. Tyler, thank you. I'll see you soon. 
And still ahead, the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. How could the nation's 16th biggest bank go under so quickly? Our next guest says there were red flags as far back as 2015. Regulators were aware of them. The Wall Street Journal's Greg Zuckerman joins us with those details next. Welcome back, everybody. We've got a news alert on the rescue of First Republic Bank. David Faber here with the story. Hi, David. Hey, uh, Kelly, yeah, certainly wanted to just build on the reporting we've done and then others have done as well that you guys have been uh, following. This has been the key bank in many ways, at least uh, of late in the marketplace, First Republic, because so many other regionals seem to, at least in terms of their stock prices, be recovering a bit and sort of does seem to be a bit more confidence in the market. But as I've been reporting, this is still seen as a stumbling block to sort of hoping that we're towards the end of this, let's call it, mini crisis in the banking industry. What I can tell you at this point, building on what The Wall Street Journal reported about an hour or so ago, is uh, that J.P. Morgan has been uh, hired or at least acting as uh, uh, advisor to First Republic uh, from an investment banking uh, side as well. Now, there are reports, of course, of Jamie Dimon being involved in trying to uh, coordinate a capital raise. Unclear to me if he's leading that charge. Certainly he is one of a number of different banks that um, or one of a number of different leaders of banks that gave the company deposits last Thursday. And there is a belief that in order for it to really potentially outrun any current issues and be able to actually get back to the business of being a bank, it needs to raise capital. Uh, that would be dilutive. That is why you see the stock getting hit to the tune of as much as 30 percent. Again, as with so many things during this period, it's uncertain as to what will happen here. Uh, and as I reported this morning, there is also advice being given in terms of the possibility of a sale. Would there be a buyer for the bank? Would that buyer require government assistance in some way? Can the government come in if, in fact, the bank is actually not failing? These are all kind of key questions. But right now, one of the efforts does seem to be focused on a capital raise, Kelly. Now, you know, last Sunday, there was a hope that the liquidity facilities provided by the federal government would be enough to instill confidence. It wasn't. On Thursday, you had the $30 billion in additional deposits, i.e. liquidity being contributed by 11 banks. There was a hope that would instill confidence. It wasn't quite enough. And so here we are now talking about a potential capital raise for First Republic to allow it, the hope would be at least, to start to make new loans, give confidence to its investors, to its employees, to its customers, and anybody else. We'll see. Quick. It remains a key question mark, I guess, in terms of the return to health, so to speak, of the overall sector, Kelly. Just a simple observation, David. Obviously, a capital raise is dilutive to the equity base, but you'd still expect the shares to be rallying if it felt like this move would now be enough to guarantee its survival, and instead we see the opposite happening. It's a good point. Uh, you're right. I mean, nobody knows exactly how dilutive it would be. Remember, we're talking about a $3 billion or less market value at this point. Hmm. So if you're going to put in $25, $30 billion in capital, I don't know what the number is, but I've reported the whole could be as much as 25 that is going to be quite dilutive. Uh, but to your point, the market has taken it so far as another sign of trouble. Yeah, it's heading back towards the lows to some extent, just over $15 a share. David, thank you. David Favor, don't think it's the last we're going to see of David. Maybe today, maybe, maybe tomorrow, definitely this week. Let's get to Keith Narikin now. He's chairman of the Banking Supervision Regulation Group at Potomac Global Partners, and he's former acting controller of the currency. Keith, thank you for joining us today and welcome. 
Thanks for having me, Kelly. Do you mind just providing a, a follow-up reaction to what David was just reporting and what's happening with the equity of First Republic here? What does that tell you? Well, look, I mean, there's a systemic issue across the banking um, sector with weakness, with maturity mismatch. So if you're an equity holder, obviously you're going to look for the exits, apparently, by like trying to mark to market balance sheets. And I think, you know, regulators have a real challenge ahead of them uh, by getting like real equity numbers, real uh, accounting numbers in front of the marketplace. Right now, there's, uh, you know, the, the way a regulatory capital goes, um, you know, by not including the uh, you know accumulated other comprehensive income as they're not allowed to do um, under a 2013 change in the capital rules, uh, the markets, there's not like a true picture. Silicon Valley Bank, for instance, was well capitalized on the day it failed. Same thing with Signature. So, you know, there, there's, there's fear um, and, and people are gonna typecast banks and you, know, you can have all the liquidity you want if people don't think the bank's solvent uh, people are going to look for the exits and, and the liquidity facilities will just fund the run, basically. Would the disclosure of deposit flight or lack thereof go a long way here? And is its is its lack of disclosure itself one of the key problems? Well, I think that would help, right? Because I think, again, in, in this type of situation where you have like funding facilities that, that people may not know the entire um, you know story of what they are and how they're collateralized, um, and what the business is going to look like in the future, that's the key to what an equity value is, right? It's not like what it is today or there might be stabilization. It's what the bank's going to look in like six, nine months, five years for that matter. And I think there's a lot of betting that there's a lot of rearranging going on in the banking sector and that banks aren't going to look the same in, in six months, nine months, let alone five years. And that obviously goes into play to what an equity value is or, or the price of long-term debt. Our last guest, uh, Caitlin Long, suggested that the Fed would not permit anything other than the fractional reserve banking system. Um, is that the case? I mean, if I wanted to start a bank tomorrow and said, instead of fractional reserve banking, I'm just going to charge you, Keith, uh, $50 a month for my services, and I'm going to hold, uh, you know, one-to-one dollars against your deposits, could such a company like that get a charter? Um. Good question. I mean, I think, you know, all the options are going to have to be on the table after this. This was a thought, you know, even dating back to my days at Wharton in the early 90s that, you know, scholars had thought about and, and clearly fractional reserve banking system introduces the risk of runs, uh, which is why we have this uh, heavy apparatus of, of banking regulation, which I've spent my life, uh, you know, in, in expertise in. But like, over time, you may have more stable ways to do this if if things are fully collateralized, uh, but you know nothing's free from risk, right? I mean, as we saw with the stablecoin issue, uh, you have to put your money somewhere. Uh, you can put your money in a bank, uh, and the bank may lose money. Uh, you may put your money in treasury bills. The treasury bill market may seize up or or go sideways. So you know those are all all you know issues that are going to arise. I think with any uh, sort of uh, financial intermediary function and. And those are the risks that have to be um, dealt with both at the institution level and, and at the larger regulatory level. We are clearly seeing a glut of cash going into money funds and the rest of it. It sounds like they're very different than they were in the crisis days when they were exposed to a lot of crap, for lack of a better word, <laughs> that also lost money and then caused runs on the money funds. 
This time around, they're in a lot of government securities. And so we're in this situation where it seems like one way or the other, the government is paying businesses to hold its cash, right? It's either doing it through money funds. It's paying interest on treasuries that those funds are holding. It's, you know, guaranteeing deposits on some level. It's at some point, why do we have all of this apparatus when could or should people just get uh, that return paid for directly by the Fed? Or or is there a way to avoid it altogether? I mean, it basically is implying the private system uh, can't handle this fundamental need for, you know, companies or individuals to keep large cash deposits. Yeah, well, look, it's been an issue throughout the history of the country, right? Of, I mean, all the way from the very beginning of the country, banks have been controversial. Big banks have been even more controversial. Um, and, you know, we, we sort of get along, uh, go along. Um, there is a large treasury market because of large government borrowing, and that's viewed as a, a fairly safe investment as long as the credit, um, you know, of the United States government is sound. Um, so, you know, people are are using that market. I mean, I think the again, I'm not a specialist in 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 uh, funds and the like, but you know, I mean, if, if the more you have people putting your money in money funds that are supposed to, you know, guarantee the dollar, and, right. and as the treasury market moves. Uh, that's a challenge to maintain. But, you know, it's also a challenge to maintain at the bank level as yeah. well. Can you imagine if all this cash went into basically Treasury bills and then we hit the debt ceiling? I mean, it, <laughs> it is just so final quick question, Keith, this yes. um, request by a lot of the regional banks, two years, I think, what is it of, of unlimited FDIC de- right. deposit moves by Congress that might be next year. Um, could you just weigh in on the sure. appropriateness of those measures? Well, look, I think, you know, it probably would take an act of Congress. This is what Dodd-Frank legislated, $250,000 cap. During the financial crisis, uh, before that law was in effect, the FDIC and and the government put in place a temporary account guarantee of transaction accounts. Uh, You could imagine something like that being appropriate here. Again, I'm not sure that it could be done without an act of Congress, Uh, but that might stabilize the system until we had like a better vantage point vantage into like the true health of banks and and might stave off, um, you know, a a really a movement of cash to the largest banks where that's all we had left after it was over. All right, Keith, great chatting with you. Thanks for your time. All right. Thanks, Kelly. Keith Narika, former comptroller of the currency. Let's stick with the instability in the banking uh, sector as regulators shut down Silicon Valley Bank just a little more than a week ago. The collapse surprised some, but according to the Wall Street Journal, there were red flags all over the place. Joining me now to talk about how things got went so wrong, Greg Zuckerman, a special writer at the Journal. Greg, it's good to have you on the news line today. And back in 2015, what were the issues? Yeah, and great to be here with you, Kelly. Again, so as long ago, as you suggest, 2015, FDIC regulators and others had identified issues, the growth, the dependence on one industry, the venture capital industry, Others were concerned about lack of risk management, and we delve into more recently the, the poor risk management. Your, your previous guests have talked about the questions of, does this raise issues about the fractional reserve uh, banking industry? Uh, to me, it's a question of poor risk management, dependence on models that were really poor, and reassured them. They had models internally over the past year saying interest rates were unlikely to soar. Uh, garbage in, garbage out. That hmm. was um, those were models that really undercut their operations. So their models said interest rates were unlikely to soar. At what point did they look at the Fed statement and go, "Well, you know, these dots are pointing to you know a massive increase in the funds rate, and maybe now we need to hedge, or now we need to think about you know what, take us back to so the first rate hike was January of 2020." 
to Greg. What played out over the ensuing months as the Fed signaled and then began a series of steep hikes? Right. Well, well, as you know, there was an argument that the inflation issue wasn't something uh, endemic, that it was transitional, that, uh, yeah, there'd be higher rates, but it won't be something that they'd be raising aggressively. Um, you know, part of the issue is we in society and business have become overly dependent on models. I'm a big believer in models, some of the best investors and others, and companies have developed these models, but you also want to be careful about the information you uh, input into these models. And it seems as like the executives that we've reported in the story of SVB were a little bit beholden to models that were reassuring when they really should not have been. Wow. So real quickly then, uh, the lack of chief risk officer, Greg, some of these things, should this have been flagged higher up by the Fed and by supervisors? Was this a massive lapse on their part uh, not to push harder for the bank to rectify this? Yes, that was something obviously regulators should have identified, but also the fact that so many venture capital firms and companies had put so much of their money into this one bank. And frankly, they did it because they liked bankers at SVB. They were helpful. They knew the industry. But also, as we reported, there was another side to the bank where they pressured these borrowers. They said, unless you put all your money or the majority of your money in accounts here, we're not going to lend to you. Yeah. And as a result, so many people had so much money in these accounts that when things got rough, when there were questions raised, they got scared and oh. then it was a run. Absolutely. Greg, with the great TikTok, I encourage everyone to read the piece. And thank you for joining us today. Oh, great to be here. Greg Zuckerman with The Wall Street Journal. Coming up, we'll look at big tech's balance sheets, looking at everyone's balance sheets. Those stocks are pretty much in rally mode today. At least Amazon up one and a half, uh, Apple up one and a half percent, but Amazon's down on these new job cuts. We'll dig into all of that when we come right back. Welcome back. Time for today's check, tech check. As we mentioned at the top of the show, Andy Jassy taking a page from Mark Zuckerberg's playbook, doing a second round of deep job cuts just a couple months after the first one. 18K in January, 9,000 more announced at Amazon today. Let's bring in Deirdre Bosa for the details here. Deirdre, what spurred this? So, like you said, taking a page from Meta's book, it's painful for these workforces. I mean, typically when you want to do job cuts, you want to do it once. But we're seeing that that is incredibly difficult in this backdrop. In that announcement, Jassy writes, some may ask why we didn't announce these role reductions with the ones we announced a couple months ago. The short answer is that not all of the teams were done with their analyses in late fall. And Kelly, you can imagine that other big tech companies that hired a lot during the pandemic, like in Alphabet, are looking at this as well. And you could imagine that there's a possibility there's more cuts to come from other places. So the question is, well, Amazon shares are down today. Now, with Meadows rounds, often the shares would be up. I mean, in Amazon's case, what do you think the market is saying? They, yeah. they didn't go deep enough? Are they going too deep? That's a really good question. Um, with Meta, right, we've seen that it's been really the silver bullet for the stock. It keeps moving higher on the back of these announcements. The fact that that's not happening for Amazon today, it's down two and a quarter percent. It could say a few things. One, they're not deep enough. Even with these cuts, it's less than 10 percent of their corporate workforce. And it's, you know, a tiny, tiny fraction of the doubling that they did over the pandemic, which includes warehouse workers. It could also be making investors 
the area where they did these cuts, that could be making investors nervous. It happened in the profit engines, AWS mm. and advertising. So it could lead some to wonder what is growth going to look like at these typically sturdy businesses in Amazon. We know that its core e-commerce is under pressure. But if AWS and advertising are under more pressure than expected, that's a problem. Great point. I always love when we show that chart of pandemic hiring as we unwind to the downside. Deirdre, thank you. Deirdre Bosa for today's Tech Check. Still ahead for the first time post-pandemic, downside risk has emerged, according to Bank of America's Michael Gapin. He joins me with his rate expectations and where he's managing to find some bright spots. That's next. Welcome back. Before we go, my next guest says that following the SVB bank collapse, he expects a quarter point hike on Wednesday and for the Fed to keep its balance sheet runoff or QT as long as the banks remain stable. But he also says the downside risk has emerged for the first time post pandemic. Joining me now is Michael Gapin, head of U.S. economics at Bank of America Global Research. Michael, great to see you again. Welcome. Thanks for having me on. Is it correct to call that your expectations a dovish hike? And, and when can I start going, why are we hiking at all? And then the market just thinks we're going to have to cut again by the end of the year anyway. And anyway, make your case. And, and not so much what they will do, but even why you think this would make sense and be justified. Yeah, I think the justification is that they have two goals and two tools, right? The goal is financial stability in the short run and price stability in the medium term. And so they can act in two directions at once, use their lender of last resort functions uh, to preserve financial stability, also lift its policy rate to keep inflation in check. So I think that's the argument that the central bank can try and walk and chew gum at the same time. It has two objectives and two tools to do that. So we do think they'll lift the policy rate by 25 basis points this week, but I think that me- the message will be more dovish in the sense that uncertainty to the outlook ha- has risen. Sure. So it's hard for them to give concrete guidance about what it may do going forward. Things will be much more data dependent, and data dependent also includes financial market dependence. So you hike, that's the, ho- the hawkish side, but I think the message is uncertainty, move cautiously, that's the dovish side. So when you say that downside has risk, downside risk has emerged for the first time, what do you mean by that? Well, we had, so we've had a recession in our baseline for quite some time now, but momentum in the economy has always been stronger, that we were seeing slowdowns in, say, housing and some parts of business spending, but it was narrow. And the labor market was strong, consumer spending was strong, so risks were really in the direction of an economy that wanted to keep going and keep expanding, and risks to the Fed policy path were to the upside. Now I think you can argue we've seen, we've already seen a tightening in bank lending standards before the recent events. Those are likely to tighten further. Credit growth is likely to slow further. Therefore, you have more balanced risks around the outlook. And should you get a sharper contraction in credit than we're expecting, that's where your downside risk would would come from. So that's, were, that's what we mean by downside risk now emerging. You were early in the recession call. It, um, in the sense that you've always said, maybe towards the back half of this year, a lot of people are coming around to that view. So again, why not cut here or at least pause? Well, because I, our thesis has been to get inflation down to 2%, you do need to correct some of those imbalances in, in the labor market. And, and that would mean something that looked like a traditional recession. So we think it's just the, the cost of trying to get price stability would involve a correction in the labor market. So if that was the goal, we felt history tells us more likely than not, you end up with something that that looks like a recession. So you wouldn't cut now just because you haven't made enough progress in bringing inflation down to two. 
certainly with, with balanced risks now and, and risks perhaps to the downside, yes, the transition from hikes to cuts may, may come, come sooner, but I don't think that's baked in the cake either. All right. Market is certainly heading in that direction, uh, but we'll see how the, the rest of these days play out with the banks and all the rest of it. Michael, thanks for your time today. It's good to see you again. Thank you. Appreciate it. Michael Gabin, Bank of America. That does it for us, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Next on Power Lunch, Morgan Stanley isn't worried about a spending slowdown. We'll trade their top pick for the e-commerce reacceleration that they're calling for. Tyler's getting ready for it. I'll join him on the other side of this quick break. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 